Welcome to episode number 125 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we are talking about challenges in regulating combustible dust processing industries in California. To do that, we have on the call Justin Beal, who is an inspector and fire prevention engineer with the city in Fresno, California. He's also a principal at Pacific Consulting and Risk. Justin, thank you for coming on the Dust Safety Science Podcast and welcome. Thank you very much, Chris. And uh, let me start off by saying I appreciate everything that you uh, and your team is doing. It's uh, very beneficial and uh, I think uh, it's a credit to to the industry. We appreciate that. And I kind of had a feeling you might say that because that's how we met. You emailed and, and said some nice words about the podcast a little while ago. And in that email, you said something really interesting that resonated with me, which was we have a lot of technical folk, a lot of consultants, equipment providers, some victims, unfortunately. We have all these people on the podcast. We have these stories and science and research. And basically, the crux of your email was, where where are the regulators in terms of your podcast? And how can we get their perspective and challenges and understanding the impact from the regulatory side? And I think I emailed back right away and said, Justin, that's an excellent point. And you sound like the perfect person to have our first, uh, I don't know if you're actually our first inspector. You're not our first inspector, but you're probably the first one in a long time. So we appreciate you coming on. (laughs) This episode is really the first step in that. Oh, thanks. I think Jason Reason did a good job because he had uh, a lot of uh, prior experience. And so, uh, and he did a, he did a nice job kind of coming at it from both sides. So. Yeah, I agree. And those that will have listened to last week's episode will know that we had Jason on, on 124 of the podcast, talking about how unqualified individuals are affecting DHAs. So uh, Justin won't have heard that one yet because it's not actually <laughs> until, the, until the future. In today's interview, we're going to talk about what is Justin's role? What does a regulatory environment in California look like? And how is it maybe different than elsewhere in the US? And then we're going to get into this topic of challenges in regulating combustible dust from the front lines, from Justin's experience, you know, what, what are some of the challenges in terms of, of regulation in, in industries that are handling combustible dust? And the big thing that I'd like to get out of this discussion is really around what does Justin think we can actually do to, to help improve that over time? Both, you know, generally, what do we need to do, but maybe even with the podcast or Dust Safety Academy or, or Dust Safety Professionals or the communities that we're building in combustible dust. So that's sort of the mini outline Jumping in then, Justin, can you go through what is your, your role in trees that handle combustible dust? So uh, with the city, and uh, let me make sure I put the disclaimer out there that the opinions that I offer are mine. They don't represent the municipality in any way, shape or form. So uh, make sure that that's clear. But as a regulator, we look at both the process uh, safety to a great degree. And we also look at you know the fire and life safety risks that are presented uh, as well as the deflagration, flash fire uh, risks. And then it's really the enforcement of the codes by and large. In California, we uh, currently adopt uh, the uh, 2018 International Fire Code, uh, and then we modify it to become the California Fire Code. And we do the same thing with mechanical, uh, electrical, et cetera. And um, in doing that, uh, we will take in a set of plans and go through it and, and uh, ensure code compliance. And then at the same time, we'll do annual maintenance inspections in a number of cases. And so, and ensure that the folks are adhering to the adopted reference standards. So um, we're a little late on the adoptions. So for example, NFPA 652 has a 2019 edition that's out right now. 
but the fire has it lags currently only enforcing the 2016 edition of NFBA 652 in California. On the private side, uh, I do uh, do a lot of consulting work and, and Pacific Consulting and Risk is my, my side business. Um, my full-time job is with the city, but my, my private business, which I do on the side, uh, I handle a lot of consulting, um, including in the central portion of California, a lot of agricultural processes and facilities and um, where I'm at in particular, a lot of tree nuts, a lot of uh, stone fruit and a lot of dairy and all the the associated things that go along with that. Awesome. Thank you for the background then on your role, both from the you know government inspection side and the city side. As you mentioned, you gave some really good background on the role of inspectors, you know, process safety, fire and life and safety, um, enforcement of codes, what sort of codes are in play and, and how they're integrated in California. I'd like to talk about that a, a bit more, just in terms of combustible dust. And you talked a bit about the fire code um, 2018 being adopted and then what version of NFPA 652 is included in that. What other things would the, the listener maybe be interested in knowing about the regulatory environment for combustible dust in California? What does that just generally look like? I think by and large, as far as the regulatory environment goes, uh, California is a little bit different. Uh, we have our own uh, Department of Industrial Relations that has its own series of, uh, of uh, regulations that uh, relate to co- uh, combustible dust. That is a little bit different because they have that series and they enforce that on the, uh, on the worker safety side, but it also encompasses some of the processes and and conditions and installations from the uh, fire code side i would say it's reasonably uh, consistent with what you would see across the united states we face a very similar number of challenges in that on the regulatory side there is a pretty significant uh, lack of available staffing for these kinds of things. So as far as um, the enforcement piece of that, uh, whether we're talking about fire inspectors uh, being able to do field inspections or or folks that are kind of in the actual field side of it, there is, so the the staffing is one of the biggest challenges I think fire departments everywhere face. The second part of that is, is that uh, the training portion of that is really, really, it's difficult because you know, the industry does a really good job of um, putting out training that are related to their, for example, specific products or specific installations. I've not yet had a, uh, uh, a safety person or, or uh, somebody that represents a company be hard to work with as far as how their system works, et cetera. Their goals are different than ours, though. And I think that that's one thing that is, you know, kind of gets confusing is, is that In their case, it might be they want to sell additional equipment or they want us to understand how their equipment works. And that's great. And it is very valuable. But from the regulators standpoint, what one of the things I see is, is that having qualified professionals to be able to teach regulators that may not necessarily have the same level of experience, may not have the same level of training. And, um, there is a uh, there is unfortunately a real lack of training on the regulatory side, and I think that 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 can that can be uh, a little bit that not a little bit that is that is quite challenging. So I think from that standpoint, 
you know, we're, we're, we're all, we all don't have enough money in the, on the municipal, municipal side, we all don't have enough training and we all don't have enough staff. Yeah. So I got a couple of things here that you mentioned already sort of on the, the challenges column that I'm putting on my paper here. One was, one was adoption and timing. And I mean, that is difficult from state to state as well, depending on when, depending on which version of the international fire code they've adopted, or if they've adopted the fire code, if they made any modifications to suit their industries or modifications to the engineer, best engineering practices, um, staffing and training kind of as an understanding piece, how like as a, as a end user in California or even in, in Fresno, cause it, it might even be different municipality, but municipality, how do you become Im- involved? Do you just, you know, look at all the industries in your, your local region and, and come up with a list of, of inspections or, do people request that you come out? I'm just curious of how that looks from, you know, how the, how the regulators get involved with the industries that are potentially handling combustibles. Sure. So in a lot of cases, uh, the primary driver is uh, permit applications for new processes uh, or new pieces of equipment. That's the primary reason or primary way on the new construction side. Lots of departments would like to do a lot more annual maintenance inspections where we're going in under periodic frequency and doing an inspection of the facility to ensure that it is in compliance with the maintenance provisions of the adoptive reference standard that regulates it. Then there's kind of, and that that is all really from the fire prevention side. Then you have the field uh, or operation staff side, which is uh, those are the folks that are day in, day out, doing the operations uh, portion of fire department service. And they like to be able to go out and do familiarization inspections um, and things of that nature. At least in California, those folks, uh, in a lot of cases, not all, but in a lot of cases, they tend to be a little less enforcement oriented. They're more uh, wanting to be able to uh, understand what the risk is or what the materials that they'll be handling are. And NFPA does a good job in NFPA 1620 pre-incident planning. And, and uh, it's just, I think that for all of us in the fire service, it's really difficult to put the level of effort into an NFPA 1620 pre-plan, given the staffing that we're, the, the staffing challenges that we all face. Yeah. And we had Glenn Serduke, who's really knowledgeable on that topic um, on the podcast in 103 and 104, talking about pre-planning um, and actually working with firefighters. And he sort of, I can see overlap between what you're saying and what he was saying is some of the challenges as well. Right. Uh, Glenn did a great job in that piece um, talking about collaborating with the local fire authority. The reason I asked before we kind of circle back to the challenges is I've, I've thought about this this integration of, of regulatory and, and inspectors quite a bit and, and how to come up with some solutions. And one of the things that I keep coming back to is like, where are the touch points? How does the inspectors, the regulators get involved? Because if, say, if I were to insert a magical you know, combustible dust fix button here, it has to be inserted in a place where, where the, that touch point is. If it's, you know, some training that we create that doesn't, isn't timely or isn't, doesn't fit in the right place and it's not going to work. Um, so some of these touch points that you mentioned are permit applications for new constructions. Would you mentioned would like to do more maintenance oriented um, inspections. And I assume the would like to do more there is related to staffing limitations. Yes, uh, absolutely is is uh, in in California at least we have a number of inspections that are state mandated, 
and combustible dust producing operations are not one of them. And so most departments that I know of are, we have a difficult time completing just the state mandated inspections. And because of that uh, processes like combustible dust, those are ones where in a great number of cases, uh, it's left to the owner to uh, to follow the, the the adopted reference standard. Well, that's a good point. So we, yeah, we have sort of a list of state mandated inspections, and each state would be different. I know even even Canada, each province is different. Some did have a a mandate for combustible dust, say after a large incident, um, and, and they may have changed their focus. So we have those as sort of two permit applications, and then the the maintenance inspections. And the third one that you mentioned was the fire service and department, not necessarily for enforcement purposes, but for for knowledge and understanding, so that they can, if a fire happens on site, they you know know what it looks like. You know they can avoid injuring their their folks. They can also avoid or reduce the amount of loss. And a lot of that was what Glenn talked about. So we have these sort of three touch points. Are there any other sort of touch points that are worth noting at, at this stage? Yeah, I think uh, you mentioned it, you know, and that's the after action. And unfortunately, uh, you know, it feels like in, in a lot of cases being in fire prevention, you know, our whole goal and focus is preventing those things from ever happening. But in a lot, in a great number of cases, it ends up being after something bad has already happened. So I think it would be beneficial to be able to do more of those. But and the fire code does allow that in the uh, operations side of it for allowing a jurisdiction to charge a fee to cover the cost for a, an operational permit for a combustible dust producing operation. But in it, like I said, it's even those cases where that's available or a, a, an agency adopts it, it's very difficult to justify doing those kinds of inspections when you're having trouble meeting a, a state mandated requirement. Yeah, I can imagine. So we have the sort of four touch points and permit applications just uh, mate. Are they, is maintenance inspection the right word to say there? Like, I don't know how to say it. Scheduled inspections, I guess it would be the, uh, the right word maybe. Yeah. It, like I said, we ideally you would want to do it as an, as a portion of an operational permit. So you would, if you had a biannual or annual inspection where you were issuing an operational permit, you would, the, uh, one of the customers would fill out a permit application. You would go out and do an inspection to issue them that operational permit. And then uh, they would be good for the next year or for the next two years, depending upon uh, how it went. Okay. And then we had the fire service and we had incident investigation after something happens. On the, the challenge side, we had uh, you know adoption and the, the number of standards. You were, well, maybe I'll come back to that. You mentioned staffing and enforcement. You mentioned training. Before the call, you sort of mentioned that everyone wants to be regulated differently and and you know, I'm and maybe kind of misquoting there, but I can see the, the thought process. Do you find that as a challenge? Is just the sheer number of different industries and, and kind of companies and types of individuals that you're working with? I think that that is, uh, I think that that is one thing that is uh, a challenge that we're going to continue to face. And, and, and everybody uh, in the combustible dust space does for, for at least in my experience, doesn't want to be regulated differently because the risk that the material that they're working with poses different kinds of risk. And I certainly understand the, um, the desire to do so. Why should, if you're dealing with, you know, for example, uh, a grain handling process, 
in a very large uh, silo with conveyors and all the stuff that goes along with that, why would you want to be treated the same uh, as the person who's doing additive manufacturing? And so I see that those things are very different from one another. They pose very different levels of risk. But at the same time, that type of specialization creates hurdles for both, I think, industry and it uh, creates issues for the regulator. On the industry side, the issue is, is that if you're trying to provide service for uh, you know, the grain handler or for, for somebody that's doing uh, woodworking or somebody who's doing additive manufacturing, there's a, a, a different set of reference documents. There might be different you know, sizes of dust. The dust that you're dealing with in a lot of cases has the composition of it is different. And, uh, and, you know, one of the big things is getting your dust tested. And so, except that is not consistent. It's constantly changing depending upon a vendor who's providing, you know, a person uh, or firm the raw materials, for example. From the regulator side, the, the issue is, is that if you're in Central California and you have a large number of grain handling facilities that you're dealing with, um, those are great because in a lot of those cases, the industry and the owners of those firms are doing a great job uh, in dealing with them. And But they're being regulated differently than uh, the cabinet maker uh, who might be down the street. And so because we, we can't agree, or maybe that's not really the right word, but there's got to be some sort of overarching principle that everybody could can uh, can follow and provides an acceptable level of safety for for uh, the vast majority. And I think that that's one of the things you know that it, it makes it challenging because you may be dealing one day with the grain handler and have been dealing with that for five years, ten years, and then tomorrow you're dealing with an additive manufacturer that is essentially a very similar risk, but it's regulated completely differently. Yeah, I can I can totally see, and we've seen it as well. Just yeah, sheer number of materials, different particle sizes, equipment processing, you know, sophistication level. Like if, if you have a pharmaceutical plant that's making a you know a, a high efficacy drug, then you know they're going to have a different level of sophistication than different industries. I don't want to call out any other specific industries, I guess, but that that's going to be very different. The level of experience, I mean, a large company might have somebody in host that you know has is is well versed in combustible dust. Um, you think of some of the large companies in the United States that follow maybe a full PSM program at their combustible dust facilities versus, like you said, the small cabinet maker that that you know it's just a, a mom and pop shop. So there's all these different people, and then. So I guess I would say we can't treat everyone different. <laughs> There's too many different people in there. So I, I'll, I'll at least put my my line in the sand there. Um, we can't have a totally different regulation for everyone. So then we just got to come to agreement on what is the baseline level and and what are the things that we're adding on top of that. And, and NFPA is sort of set up that way in terms of having you know NFPA 652 as the general concepts and then the, the industries kind of branch off from there. It just... Right now, the number of things that are in the industry-specific ones is probably a bit high for folks to be able to manage out there. And I, I don't know that that's. I guess that's a better question for you because you're the one that's out there managing it. But do you find it's kind of difficult to to manage that with all the different standards that are out there, and then also, you know, different states are adopting standards at different times and, and that sort of thing. I can imagine that adds even 
to then your training difficulties and your your employee or your employee shortage as well. That is 100% correct. Uh, I know, for example, on the podcast, lots of times folks reference the current edition of NFPA uh, 652. And um, in California, we don't adopt that. So, for example, the retroactive provisions, those weren't adopted here because we're a cycle behind on the NFPA 652 adoption. And so that does create uh, challenges. One of the other ones that uh, we didn't touch on is um, speculative buildings. So for example, in a lot of cases, we have buildings that are constructed that there is no tenant for, for example, and um, there's no specified use. The occupancy is, for example, it's a group S1, and uh, which is a moderate hazard storage facility. And then you never, because of staffing, you never go back and actually do an inspection. And maybe the owner operator never uh, seeks out a permit to do some sort of combustible dust operation. And then the next thing that can happen um, and does from time to time is there is an incident because they were handling a combustible dust product. And, uh, and obviously there was an issue there and uh, the fire department or fire authority never knew that that process existed. And so that creates, you know, that's another issue of, of the way that the uh, construction and operations and the regulator, all these mismatched uh, things that can happen. And, and like you said before, the, the, the challenges of regulating everybody the same versus everybody wanting to be regulated differently is, is uh, it, it's really uh, a challenge. Okay, so we've we've talked through. I think I have at least six challenges here. What do you think some of the some of the solutions might be moving forward? How can we start to solve some of these things? And keeping in mind, we're probably not going to figure it all out in the next ten minutes. But let's take a crack at at least getting a couple ideas down on the paper. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think. Uh, I like I said. I think industry does a good job on the training piece. We need to have. I, I think some sort of, for example, nationally recognized standard on what that training looks like. And uh, for example, on the operations side, there's uh, hazardous operations awareness level training, hazardous uh, operations response training, and, and then that goes on from there. On the fire prevention side, we need to have a, a, a similar uh, scheme of being able to do that. Uh, the state of California has a great training program, but it's much more general. It is less industry specific. And so for example, if in this space, kind of like what we were talking about, regulating everybody differently, we should also be training everybody the same. We should be regulating people to a similar standard, and then we should be training the people who do the enforcement to a to a similar standard. In the combustible dust space in particular, the challenge of, of a cost reduction for getting the dusts tested Boy, that's that's a real big impediment. Like you said, you know, at the, the mom and pop cabinet maker, um, getting that dust tested is difficult. And then the uh, the uh, lack of awareness on the part of the folks who are engaging in some of these uh, operations. You know, we always joke that there is people are engaging in risky behavior, and to a degree, they know that it is risky. What they don't really understand, uh, at least from my experience, is the level of risk that they're accepting. And I think that that is, uh, that is something that on the public outreach side, both industry 
um, the folks who manufactured maybe the equipment and support those industries. And those of us on the regulatory side have to do a better job of educating the folks that are getting into a business and, and starting out from scratch. Yeah, those are some really good points there. So I had, it would be nice to regulate to the same standard. It'd also be nice to train folks to the same standard. When I say standard here, I think we're, we're not necessarily talking about a specific NFPA standard, but to a same, to a common denominator, whatever that common denominator is. Understanding the cost for safety. And I'll sort of add an asterisk to that one. Also, evaluating or measuring the cost of, of non-safety. So how much are you losing right now because you're burning out equipment or having fire response? Because that gives you something to measure your your safety program against. And I don't see, I don't think companies are being educated enough to do that. You know, the fire may just be seen as cost of doing business, but if you put that up against the cost of installing a safety system to reduce the fires, you can actually maybe find some money to implement your, your safety program. Awareness is always the biggest challenge. That's why we create the podcast. <laughs> That's why we have these discussions is try to increase awareness. And I really like the way that you put it on. So people might, you know, understand that they are um, engaging in risky behavior from the textbook definition of risk. They probably don't see it as that risky, but then they don't really have a full grasp on what, uh, how much, how much risk they've they've accepted by going through that until something sort of bad happens, right? I was going to circle back on this question of staffing because um, you sort of mentioned a couple times as that being a big challenge, mostly with meeting your mandated um, inspections. And if combustible dust isn't in that, you know, a category that's under those mandated inspections, staffing being a challenge there, staffing's a challenge with hiring. What do you see as some potential solutions or, or where should we head to try to solve that challenge? Wow, that's that's a great question. Uh, I will say, you know, I, I've been doing this for, for a, a pretty significant period of time. And, and I think that, and during that time, I've seen lots of folks Come and go, both from uh, from my agency and from other agencies, and um, it's difficult on the one hand because to be a regulator is is hard when if in in a lot of cases it feels like everybody that you're dealing with is just pushing back. You know, by by right, the regulated community in a lot of cases doesn't want to be regulated and doesn't evaluate risk in the same way. And so that's one issue. And it takes a kind of person who's really dedicated to, to safety and the mission of serving the public to be able to do that and do it over a really long period of time. And, uh, and so there's that, you know, uh, like every other industry, the uh, compensation packages that are provided by a lot of municipalities are not the same as what might be available in private industry. and. Uh, so in a lot of cases, private industry takes a great number of, of really good people who would be great regulators, but because the, the municipalities can't afford or can't compete on those bases, it's, it's, it makes it difficult from that standpoint. I've heard that called sort of the regulator brain drain a bit. If you get an inspector that's really good, then... They, they leave. Yeah, not, I mean, not necessarily. I know plenty of, of inspectors that are, are the you know, really good and still, still inspecting. But yeah. Jason Reason is a good example where he, you know, spent uh, over a decade with OSHA and, and eventually moved on to the consulting side as well. So it, it is sort of a real thing. And I, I say it a bit tongue in cheek, but you do see that sort of happen. 
Yeah, it must be difficult going out there every day and working with folks that aren't really that happy to see you. <laughs> um, and I've just, I, I started here and I don't know what this is and, and how we'll, it's not something we're going to solve today, but I put partnership programs between the regulators and industries. It's like, and these are long-term trust building exercises. And I have seen some examples to suggest that this can be a long-term thing, but it is it is hard. It takes a lot of effort. Uh, and at first, if you have a, the the regulator and the industry talking a lot they tend not to like each other for a bit <laughs> so it takes a couple of years of, of that we'll call partnership program in air quotes um, to develop to a point where you can trust each other but it is good once you get there and the regulator can then start saying things like hey you know next year we're going to start really looking at these pieces of equipment or really looking at this standard you know or this is what's coming down the pipe and the industry can then be appreciative of knowing ahead of time what's going to happen and maybe is able to provide more feedback and, and information to the regulators on stuff before they even show up at the door. But it takes a long time to build that sort of trust and relationship. And it has to be done sort of in a small micro community. So I, I don't know how to do it on mass with everyone, but we'll, hopefully this podcast is the first step to start to make some of those connections. I think you're right that those trust building exercises are are really valuable. and uh, And I think as as we keep going forward, hopefully that synergy continues to to build onto itself. And and you're right, this podcast is a great example of, of uh, facilitating that. Yeah, and we're gonna have some projects coming down the tracks um, that we talked about at the dust safety conference. In terms of we're we're calling them global working groups right now, but I don't know if that will be their long term name. But on things like response to dust fires, on developing an incident reporting network, where we're hoping to have people from you know, the regulatory side, from the industry side, from the special expert side to tackle some of the bigger challenges that we're seeing in terms of, of why there's loss with combustible dust. And hopefully those can start to build some of those relationships as well. But things, even simple things like the pre-planning exercises that, it's not an exercise, the pre-planning documents that need to be completed that Glenn was talking about and you mentioned earlier in this podcast interview, those are great, you know, times to bring in the fire department, to bring in the a regulator and get their input and a lot of companies might be nervous to do that but it will help over time start to build those relationships as well so i don't know if those documents are going to be touch points where we can start to create those connections as well anything else so we talked through a number of challenges we talked through some solutions anything that you want to leave the listener off on on this first of hopefully many <laughs> interviews with with regulators to, to start to address some of these challenges I think the primary primary thing that I would like to say or, or like uh, the folks out there to understand is, is that the regulator has everybody's best interest at heart, and that includes industry. We primarily are concerned with the life safety of the occupants uh, of any of these locations, followed by the folks that are going to be responding to some sort of incident out there. And I think in a in a couple of your podcasts, we've talked about some of the risks. I think I think a matter of fact, I think it was in uh, the one I listened to yesterday that the second uh, set of folks who are most likely to be injured or killed uh, at a at a uh, dust fire or dust explosion are the response personnel, and and that is that is something that uh, we take very seriously. And so when we say that we want to partner with industry and uh, provide that, we want industry to move forward. That helps everybody. We want to make sure that everybody is safe. And that is our primary, uh, at least on the regular 
regulator side, that's our primary role is making sure safety first and then everything else uh, second. And, um, and, but we do recognize that uh, uh, industry has to, has to move forward and, and pro- provides valuable jobs and community development. And, and I think that's the other thing is, is that we as regulators don't, we don't have by and large any sort of ill intent towards industry, but, but our focus has to be on the safety has to come first. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think a good way to look at it is in the case where where there are goal conflicts um, between things like cost and production or um, whatever it is, really to take a critical eye on those those can we adjust those the metrics that we're using to define those goal conflicts to to understand and, and maybe get a safer solution at the end of the day. Like the one I, I mentioned earlier was okay, we can't afford, you know, two thousand dollars or four thousand dollars or whatever it is to do our combustible dust testing. And can't afford the, the safety systems, but if you're if you're having a fire every two months and you're burning out your dust collector, replacing bags, or you have downtime, if you, if you have depends on what industry you're in, but if, you know if you have two or three days of downtime a year due to incident response, um, and you can get that down to to you know only one every couple of years, you'll probably find enough revenue in those couple of days to pay for your safety, your safety solution. So starting to define how we look at those goal conflicts a little bit differently, um, I think is a, is a great f- first step. So I think there's lots of things in there, a lot of things to unpack. This, this episode was filled with a lot more questions than answers, I think, although there were a couple of answers in there <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, the big picture ideas that we need to address. But I think I think that's a good place to leave it off, Justin. I do want to say thank you for the kind words again on our work. We really appreciate it. The response that we get from the community, and we keep sort of a wins in our wins channel. We call it in our communication system with with myself and the team. And every time you get a nice email or something, we put it in there. And we get two or three a week now, <laughs> so it's it's nice to see that it keeps us going, keeps us motivated to tackle our our mission, which is to see one year of zero fatalities by two thousand thirty eight. So I do want to say thank you for that. I want to say thank thank you for reaching out with the critical thoughts of saying, hey, you need to get this other perspective more in there. And, and I want to say thank you for being one of the first to be able to provide that perspective. Well, thank you, Chris. And I, I think I speak for all of us in the regulatory community when I, I say the, the value you're providing is is uh, beyond measure. Uh, thank you. And I'll pass that on to the team as well. And we'll, uh, you know, like I said, they'll help drive us forward. So thank you, Justin. Thank you for everyone for listening. Um, and I'm sure this won't be the last time that Justin and I are are talking on this topic of combustible dust. So thank you again, and I look forward to talking soon. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Justin Beale, Inspector and Fire Prevention Engineer with the City of Fresno, California, and also Principal at Pacific Consulting and Risk. We were talking through challenges in regulating combustible dust processing industries um, within California. So we talked a bit about Justin's role in industry, both as a, well, mostly as a, a regulator and inspector, um, he also has a fire service background, and we talked about that as well. We talked about what kind of touch points you might have as an end user with these sort of regulators, and we, I think we came up with four. So we had sort of new construction permit applications. We had operation permits, so as things are ongoing, having having routine inspections and scheduled inspections there. We had fire service and departments um, reaching out, and then we had after-action uh, investigations as well as sort of being four main touch points where you might see regulators show up. And I, I do think it's important to to verbalize and point out those touch points because I think those are keys to unlocking how combustible dust can be inserted and awareness can be inserted through those points as well. So 
I'll, I'll probably be talking more on future podcast episodes about that. Uh, we talk through challenges, things like different timing and adoption of standards and regulations, staffing for enforcement inspection groups and agencies, training for inspection in groups and agencies, the the just sheer number of industries that are involved in handling combustible dust, specialization. We we kind of touched on, I didn't have a good word for it, but I put ghost processes, one the ones that get started up without even going through the the permitting channel. And then once something happens, you know, people may, the fire response or, or investigators or inspection personnel might not even know that process can get started in the first place. And we talked through what some of these solutions might be. So regulating to a same standard or same collection of standards um, would be a really great first step. Having some sort of standardization on training processes for hazard awareness, for hazard response, for hazard recommendation, for dust hazard analysis, these are all things that can really help solve some of these challenges as well. Um, looking at the cost of safety and, and finding some factors that we can measure that cost, it's always going to be an uphill battle if it's just, okay, this system is going to cost us $20,000 and that's our capital cost and there's no investment there, there's no return. But I'm going to start making my mission to identify, well, there is an actual return on that system, especially if it stops you from having a fire or blowing up a piece of equipment or heaven forbid, um, injuring or, or, you know, seriously injuring an employee. Um, those are all things you need to measure that couple of costs today um, and the ongoing maintenance costs for that system against as part of your investment process. Awareness, understanding the specific level of risk that you're working in. These are all things that we, we talked about as being parts of the solutions for combustible dust safety. So I would kind of end with a, a call to action on this. If you are a regulator or inspector and you routinely listen to these podcasts, if you find them helpful and useful, um, reach out to myself at, at chris at dustsafetyscience.com where you can go to the show notes for this episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 125. We'd love to have you on the podcast if you're interested or just have a chat and see where your head is at in terms of combustible dust safety, in terms of the challenges and regulating and doing inspections and things of that nature in these sort of industries because those are the exact challenges that we're trying to address with the you know, with the Dust Safety Science Podcast, with Dust Safety Academy, and with Dust Safety Professionals. So we'll leave it at that until next week. I hope everyone has a safe and productive week. I want to say thank you for tuning into the podcast. Um, I appreciate everything you're doing in industries handling combustible dust and making them safer all around the world. Mm-hmm.